I am here to update you on the upcoming releases from Persistent Vision Records. You can pre-order the incredible split between Massanera and Quiet Fear. It's a collaborative split. Both of these bands are great. If you're a fan of Screamo, sign right up. You can pre-order these through Persistent Vision and through Deathwish Inc. Also available is a self-titled 12-inch from the band Goisha, who are a new DC band featuring members of Genocide Pact and Brain Tourniquet. They're playing death metal with elements of grind, black metal, and punk. And lastly, a record from the band Wreath. The album is called The Land Is Not An Idle God. They are a dark, melodic crust band out of London, featuring members of the iconic bands Fall of Afrafa and Morrow. Hit up Persistent Vision or Deathwish Inc. to order now. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 171. And my guest this week is Justin Sales. He is the host of an incredible true crime podcast called The Wedding Scammer, which if you have not checked out, please go check it out as soon as you're done with this episode. Um, it was exciting to record this two weeks before it ended. So I didn't know how it, you know, was going to end. Um, so don't worry, there's not a ton of spoilers in here. I think if anything, this will just sort of, you know, wet your whistle on, uh, on what to expect from the show. Um, it's really awesome. Justin is actually a ringer staff member as well. So he is actually the producer of the podcast, 60 songs that explain the nineties, which is if you've paid attention to anything I've done in these last couple of years. You've heard me ramble and and praise how much I love that show. Uh, the host of that show, Rob Harvilla, I have had on in this forum before. Um, so it's this cool full circle thing. Um, I was, you know, familiar with the name Justin Sales, basically from listening to that show. And, uh, you know, he's a brilliant writer. He's been a staff member there for a long time. And it was really cool to hear him take on his own show with this very, very unique story that is uh, something you got to experience for yourself. So if you haven't checked out The Wedding Scammer, it's a seven episode series and you will not regret it. It is an absolutely insane tale and uh, definitely worth your time. I got to say also, it's always really exciting when you are just a fan of somebody's work and then you come to find out that they're like a hardcore kid. So it's always nice to bond over that a little bit. You know, it's like having that common thread. And I want to let you know, if you're new here, that there's a bonus episode available right now where Justin answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Subscribe for as little as three bucks a month and you will get access to that plus all of the other bonus content so i am currently on tour i have the day off today but tomorrow thursday december 7th i'm going to be in san francisco touche amore is opening for deaf heaven as they do the 10-year anniversary of sunbather we're going to be at the regency ballroom friday december 8th the novo in los angeles 
uh, Wednesday, December 13th in Denver, Colorado at the Summit Music Hall. Friday, December 15th, Touche is going to be headlining in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We're going to be playing at Two Lips with Record Setter and Pale Fade. Uh, Saturday, December 16th, we wrap this tour up in Austin, Texas at Stubbs. We hope to see you there. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the charming, the investigative, the lovely, it's Justin Sales. What's up, Justin? How are you? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, I clocked, we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, I clocked that you're wearing a Fargo t-shirt. This excites me. Are you a big Cohen guy? (laughs) I am. I actually, um, I went to go see at the Secret Movie Club here in Los Angeles. I went to go see a screening of A Serious Man the other night. And it was me and about 20 other people. And I dragged my poor girlfriend to this. And she's like, I I don't know what weird place you're dragging me to to watch this movie. But (laughs) oh, my God. Yeah, it was very funny. Um, so I feel completely left out uh, and I don't want to expose it on the, on the podcast here if it's that secret, but what is the secret movie club? Is it like a, is it a theater? It's not that secret. You can just Google it, but yes, okay. it's a, it's a, um, it's this long running kind of just revival type movie thing. You know, it's, it's LA. So there's a movie playing anywhere, anytime. Right. Totally. Um, and yeah, they just, um, they just have screenings, uh, Next month in December, they said they're doing a rare window blue velvet screening. And I'm like, I will, I will go to that. So, yeah. Oh my God. That sounds awesome. I have yeah. a very, obs- so my right leg is just Cohen Brothers tattoos. Wow. Okay. So what do you have? Uh, so I was going to say my serious man tattoo, which I got the same day as, uh, as a Hail Caesar tattoo. Wow. Okay. It's an envelope full of money and it just says, accept the mystery. <laughs> that, that is fantastic. I, <laughs> I love that. Okay, I'm trying. Uh, go on. Yeah, what, what, what are your yeah. favorites? What are your favorites? And sorry, you know, what, podcast listeners, we're, this is what we're doing right now. We're just talking. Yeah, Cohen no, the, the, this is this is great. What? Are, so, what are we doing top five Cohens or top? Yeah, three? I, I know okay, it's tough three. to give a top five off the dome, but like, no, no, but, no. But I, you know, the Cohens are like one of the only the, the only directors that I think about this like semi regularly. I mean, it's a serious man, Barton Fink, and then the third spot kind of rotates and like you know, some days it's as basic as Lebowski. Some days it's No Country for Old Men. Um, some days it's Miller's Crossing. Um, if I'm really feeling it is burn after reading. I love burn after reading so much. Okay. So yeah, it's like, I always feel like there's, when you're doing the top five, there's always, it's like the four that you feel so confident about. And then the fifth is always the one that can kind of rotate and just be like the fan favorite, like the true fan favorite. I feel like, yeah, burn after reading is a good shout. Yeah. I love, I love burn after reading. And I'm with you with saying Lebowski and no country where it's like, you feel almost basic having those in there because they're obvious, but there's a reason they're obvious. It's because they're flawless films. I took, I went to Europe this summer and the flight, you know, was 14 hours getting over there from Los Angeles and yep. I ended up watching five movies and it was yep. like, it was, you know, right after William Friedkin died. So I watched a bunch of Friedkin and then it, it gets to be the point where I can't sleep and there's two and a half hours left on the flight and I'm going through the options and I'm like, you know what? Lebowski. And it was the most perfect movie for that situation, right? Because like seen it a million times, right? But I actually hadn't seen it in like a couple of years, probably. But it just if it was just like the most perfect comfort, it's just a perfect movie. But you know. This is fantastic. I love this. This is uh, uh whether you know it or not, you and I just became very good friends. This I is love it. Uh, this this it. is this is this is fantastic. This is the best actual start to a podcast episode that I think I've I've had yet. 
Um, anytime I can just talk Cohen's. Yeah, I got <laughs> I got raising Arizona, Lebowski, uh, Barton Fink. Okay, Miller's what's Crossing. The, what's the Blood Barton Simple, Fink one? And and Hail Caesar. Those are the tattoos I've got so far. What's the Barton Fink tattoo? Uh, so it's his face, but okay. ha- the background has like the ocean scene. Oh, I love it. So like a little, little like landscape in there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I have an Oh Brother, We're Out That Tattoo, which is the barn on fire, the three silhouettes, and it says, damn, we're in a tight spot. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's been the most fun thing to kind of build on. There's a few that I'm like, fuck, I have to come up with like it's there's a few movies that are like in the bottom tier for me that are that. I'm like, I know I still have to do it because even a bottom tier Lebowski movie is still pretty good. But like, I'm like, what am I going to do for like an intolerable cruelty tattoo? <laughs> or like, a, I'm also not very big on the oh. Hutsucker proxy. I don't know where yeah. you land on that one. Yeah, not, not a big fan. But like, right. What are you going to do for the lady killers? You know? Right. And oddly enough, I have a I have a weird soft spot for that movie because I think that there's some great characters in it. Like, I, I think J.K. Simmons is like one of the best Cohen characters in that yeah. movie. But that, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's not it's not one I throw on as often as I'm throwing on Miller's Crossing, you know? Great. All right. Yo, so you're from Providence? I'm from Providence, yeah. Uh, born and raised? Yes, I lived, you know, I pretty much lived in Providence my entire life up until I hit my early 30s when I moved out to Los Angeles. In fact, okay. the first time I was ever in the same room as you was 2013. I caught you at the Met Cafe in Providence, Pawtucket Line. You were playing, I believe it was with um, The World is a Beautiful Place because- would have been right around that time it was on the what? is survived by tour okay uh that's really awesome that you were there um let me tell you right out right out the gate who it was actually because we never toured with them but it, they might i don't think they would have been thrown on it but it might i think that might have been with tiger's jaw does that sound possible it does sound very possible um i think I it might have been with tiger's jaw and dad's uh mm, that, that, mm, that might sound more correct <laughs> so yes it was it was and it was uh because we have every show listed on our site so that was july 16th 2014 2014 oh man i'm okay i'm um and i messed something up here okay damn i'm usually better with dates than that oh you're totally fine so it's funny before this interview i was like oh well we could probably talk a little providence so the first time we played there was at club hell does that place still exist do you know no club hell does not exist um i don't know what it is now um that's probably, too bad that place is cool like, it was and yeah it, and club babyhead used to be over there too which was like this legendary venue that like nirvana played um, oh shit but that's been gone for a while to the best of my knowledge club hell is gone but you know i've been gone for almost a decade now so it's yeah so the that was what uh and that was bane and strike anywhere and then the second time was at a place called jerky's live music hall does that exist Have jerky's been- does yeah. no longer exist i spent a lot of time in jerky's in my life um, okay but that that's upstairs from where club hell was oh interesting okay you spent a lot of time on that street and that was with envy and trash talk oh wow was a very okay. cool tour um and then yeah then uh tiger's jaw dads and then the last time we played there was uh, with tiny moving parts and culture abuse, which would have been at the Met Cafe as well. But that was 2016. You said you moved out here in 2016. I moved out here 2015. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, would been, yeah this is, I, I would have missed that one. A fun question I like to ask because I don't think you mentioned it on the Wedding Scammer, which is the incredible podcast that you're doing, which we're going to definitely get into. Um, but uh, 
I always like to ask people when they come to LA, where did you first land? Glendale was the first place for one month. Yeah. I had a good friend who was from Providence who had a spare bedroom and he let me and my, my friend um, that I moved across the country with um, actually stay in their spare bedroom for a month. And then a month later I moved over and they lived right next to the Americana. It was very weird. And I'm like, you know, I, they don't live there any longer. And I don't, I don't yeah. think they're going, I don't think he's going to be listening to this though. He is a fan of, of Touche. So, oh. so maybe he will, but yeah. um, it was totally not the vibe. I was looking for a living right next to the Americana. It's um, tough. It's a little it's busy tough. there. Do your listeners, do they know what the Americana is? Um, you know, it's, it's been, it's got that really popular meme page. So there's a yeah. chance that it's coming to their feed. Um, for listeners, the Americana is a big mall here in Los Angeles that was designed by the same architect who designed downtown Disney, which is interesting. Yep. Um, so it kind of has that energy, but it's, it's, uh, it's a place all its own. That's, that's certainly its thing. It's, I, I gotta say now that I don't live right there, I love when I, when I get to visit there. Um, yeah. but, but yeah. And then, um, a month later, we moved into a place in Highland Park and I have not left. I just, um, I fell in love with Highland Park. I kind of like, I feel like I have more of an attachment to Highland Park than I do Los Angeles as a whole. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, the area that you mentioned you were in is like such a great walkable area where you kind of yeah. have everything at your fingertips. This is a town where you do need a car to survive, but like you actually found a neighborhood that, feels more like it could be like a New York or something like that because it is, you got your coffee spot, you got your pizza, you got your record store, you got everything you need right there. I got like five record stores if I really want them. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, did you ever, I'm just curious, did you ever play in bands or anything? You know, I was a really terrible drummer, um, but n never, never in any bands. My, my musical output was, um, I was a DJ for a long time. I moon okay. I moonlit as a DJ and okay. I um I'd also I was a producer as well. So um a little probably a little different than most of the musicians you have on, but like it was um that was that was kind of my that was my musical background. Oh right. This I'm now remembering because I, I heard you on the sixty songs episode and yeah, you right, talk about talking, doing like rap stuff, right? Uh yeah, talking about Eminem. I Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Wait, did you so you actually rapped though too, right? Yeah, I always leave that part out of the biography unless it's relevant, but I guess it's just become relevant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We put out we put out a couple of records. They were um they were, you know, fine to good at points, you know. But you know Yeah. Uh, do you feel like you're being extra self critical and there might be better than you might be putting on, or do you feel pretty uh pr pretty good in your estimation? I feel like every now and then I'll put them on. You know, I'll just I'll get in a mood and I'll put them on and I'll listen and I'll be like, oh, this was good. And then I'll get to another part. I'll be like, eh. So I, I think it's, you know, I, I think depending on the day, it could be it could be either. Um, I, I could just be being extra critical or it could just be like, man, I made this stuff like 15 years ago. And it is, right. like, you know, it is it is some some white dudes in their 20s from Providence making making, you know. I don't know, underground hip hop for lack yeah. of a better way to put it, you know? So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, I, I, I mean, that, I feel like that's anybody, you know, I, I, I would be shocked to meet somebody who, even if they were in a band that's, I mean, like, look, I mean, like Touche has been together for 15 years now and their songs off our demo. I'm like, I would rather 
take a long walk off of a short fucking pier than have yeah. to play any of those songs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally, I totally get it. Um, some of it's fine. You know, if, if anybody cares, poorly drawn people, um, was the name of the group, which of course, uh, badly drawn boy exists. Um, but we, we ignored that. <laughs> yeah. Different genres just by a little Different bit. Genres. Yeah. You know? It was, it was totally fine. Um, so because I know you've written about music and things like that, and going into this, I knew you had a musical background. Um, I wanted to hit you with a couple of the questions that I ask musicians just because it's a topic that I just love talking about. So fantastic. I'm curious when you were young, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house by parents or something, but something that you found that gave you a sense of identity. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember the first tape that my aunt bought me was LO Cool J, Bigger and Deffer. And I, I liked it. And then she bought me a Fat Boys tape, which was which was very funny. But I didn't feel like I didn't feel like put my stamp down. I was like, I think like eight at the time. Um, yeah. I didn't feel like, yes, this is my music. This is this is going to be mine for the rest of the rest of my life. When that happened, I think I was like nine or ten. And it was when Dr. Dre's The Chronic came out. And like so many kids, because, of course, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but that was kind of the. That was the rap record that kind of conquered the suburbs, right? Like that was the one that really just put it, it just basically made rap like the most popular thing in the world in places where it hadn't been before, you know? And it was the chronic. And I remember that um, my, I begged my parents to buy me the tape. I had only ever heard the the radio versions and I, um, we got the tape and I brought it over to that same aunt's house, the same one that bought me LL Cool J and she was having a dinner party and we hit play. And I was expecting, you know, I had only heard the radio edits and then all of a sudden it comes on and uh, halfway through the intro, um, Snoop is yelling at Easy to eat a big fat dick. And, right. uh, <laughs> and, you know, I had to turn the tape off, but like there was something in that moment where it just, I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of the music I'm going to be into for, this is going to define my life for at least the next, you know, I don't know. You know, I was going to say the next few years, but we just yeah. talked about the fact that I was putting out rap records as recently as, you know, 2007, 2008. So, you know. It's so pretty- funny how records like that can be this Pandora's box that also just continues to give because it's, it introduces you to profanity in a way that you've never understood. And you probably don't even understand those references for several years. And then as you keep listening to it, as you get older, you're like, Oh my God, I didn't recognize. I didn't realize that this is what they were saying. Yeah. I remember too, at one point, you know, I, it was never like I was banned from listening to anything in my house. Um, in fact, my parents were very, my parents had no filters on anything like that, which is very funny. I remember at the age of 10, they showed me Goodfellas. And then when they realized I like it, they're like, we're going to rent you taxi driver. And it's oh not God. like they, it's not the Goodfellas. I can kind of be like, okay, you know, like I don't get everything, but you know, yeah, taxi, taxi driver. I like to joke that my life could have gone two ways. I could have fallen in love with movies or I could have gone like, I could have become Travis Bickle showing me that at right, like yeah, 10 yeah, or 11 yeah. is the same, but you know, my parents had no, they didn't care about the cursing or anything like that, but my grandmother lived with us. And I remember I will distinctly for the rest of my life forever remembering her walking in the room while I was listening to an Onyx CD 
And I don't even want to repeat the the name of the song now. So I can only imagine what my grandmother felt like right. hearing it. And it was like, she was the one like, I can't believe this is like, this is yeah. the, the kid we're raising. But was that Onyx record like called like back the fuck up or something? It was, like it was back the fuck up, but that's not the song we're talking about. <laughs> okay, yeah. 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 And, uh, I'm curious, is that LL Cool J record you're mentioning? Is that like the mama said, knock you out record or is that after? Cause I can't be- remember where the timeline is. It was with- before that. And I, I, I did, I did. She eventually I bought love. Me I need love was on it, but I'm bad was the song that I was that I was into on that. Okay, okay, amazing. What was uh what was the first concert you went to? <sighs> you know, I. It's funny. The first concert that I remember, like having like an older friend drive me to, was actually Wu Tang Clan in like '96, which I would have been like 13, 14 at the time. Yeah, and I caught Wu Tang at some point last year, and they were playing like in a park in Long Beach, and there were people like running the ages from sixty to to six, right? And, and that was not the vibe back in nineteen ninety six at one of these shows, I and bet. like, and it's just it's just this really funny thing to think about. Like, there's there's me like thirteen years old at this show, and you know my friend. Um, who was 16 had a driver's license drives me to the show and it's like you know it was it was life-changing at that at that point and then afterwards we went and got high in a church parking lot and <laughs> you know it's like it's like a perfect teenage experience if you're me but that was yeah i mean like wu-tang is a generational band at this point your group at this point you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like they're like a metallica or they're like a rolling stones for that genre where it's like you know now grandparents who are who found them when they were you know in their late 30s now are bringing their you know their grandkids to that show so one of the kids at work that i i say kids he's 27 um but he's um he's a writer here and one of my jobs here at the ringer um i'm I'm an editor i edit a lot of our music content i you know i work with writers i write myself i do a bunch of different things here but one of the guys that i edit um, his dad is probably eight, nine years older than me. And he's like, always, he's like, his dad will talk so much shit about like rap music today. And he'll just always relay it to me. He's like, his dad is the biggest ghost face fan. And it's like, yeah, it's like his dad has very strong feelings on, you know, on Wu-Tang records and Jay-Z records. He's like, it's, it's crazy. Um, that I am now old enough that the people that I, you know, directly, you know, I don't overseeing their work, um, their parents grew up on the same music as me. So it's just, it's, it's very humbling and, har- and harrowing at the same <laughs> right. time. Yeah. Best not to dwell to on it too much, but at the same time, there's probably like a little bit of badge of honor with it too, you know, sure. where you can kind of, you're the Venn diagram between, between those situations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There we go um so i know you've written also a lot about sports for the ringer and things like that so uh i imagine sports is also a pretty big part of your life yeah you know i do yes i i i love i you know from providence i'm a big celtics fan i I know that's that's probably the last thing people want to hear celtics patriots fan although people probably love hearing about patriots fans right now because that's the, the team has never been worse but yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> they only want to hear about it when they're failing. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably the case, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, um, I, I love sports. It's probably, it's 
you know, it's, it's funny. Um, you, as you just, when you get older, is that the, a lot of the sports just becomes like ambient, like just mm. the amb- ambient thing in your life where it really matters when you're young. Like it feels, I remember like the Patriots losing a Super Bowl when I was 13 or so, 12, 13. And I was heartbroken. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm an adult. I got my, my dad used to always, I remember when they lost that Super Bowl, my dad says to me, um, the first thing he says to me, and this just tells you how um, men of a certain age, and especially men of a certain age from the Northeast, um, how they react to, how they deal with their emotions. But I remember the Patriots lose that Super Bowl. And the very first thing that my dad says to me, without, without, barely, the game, the, the whistle had barely blown, right? The buzz, the buzzer had barely gone off. And he goes, eh. I got to work in the morning anyways, who gives a shit. And then he turns off the TV. <laughs> and I was like, but you, you invested all this time. And yeah. like, I, but the older I get, the more I get it. It's kind of like, eh, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm, I got stuff to do tomorrow. It's fine. But like, you know, I, I, I love sports. It's just not, doesn't probably doesn't hold the same place in my life that it used to. Yeah, no, I get it. It's that's so funny. I feel like everybody who's listening to this who's who doesn't have that, you know, like Northeast experience, like just imagines the Bill Burr of, you know, yeah. this like Bill Burr esque character because that sounds like a very Bill Burr esque situation. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was great. It was great. My <laughs> my, my dad, uh, yeah, <laughs> my, my my dad's a my dad's a very interesting guy. Showing me Taxi Driver, not because he was a cinephile, but because yeah. he was just like, oh yeah, this seems like a thing you'd also like, and. Right. And then, you know, just teaching me how to deal with emotions very healthily by just ignoring them. Of course. Yeah. As we do, as we do. (laughs) Um, uh, So what about like, at what point in your life did you become interested in writing and journalism and things like that? Did that come into your life post like doing rap stuff or was it always kind of an interest to you? It was, you know, it was. I don't, I don't know whether I was a good writer when I was a kid, but everyone used to tell me I was a good writer. And that's not like a humble brag. I legitimately don't know people, people tell kids that they're good at things all the time. And I don't, I don't know whether they are, you know? Um, But it was always like, okay, so people are telling me I'm good at this. So I should probably focus my career around something like this. And I got to college and I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. Um, and I became friends with, do you know the, God, here we go back to white guy underground rap. Do you know the rapper Sage Francis? Yeah. I became friendly with Sage Francis. Um, he had a college radio show that okay. I would, I would go up to his show every week. And so like a, you know, 16, 17 year old and I would rap on his radio show. And he went to the same college, the University of Rhode Island that I ended up going to. And he majored in journalism. And I was like, you know, if this, he's one of the best writers that I ever met. I will, I will follow in his footsteps and I will go into journalism. And like, this feels like a, like a noble, I know people don't consider it a noble thing anymore, but at the time it felt like a very noble thing to do. And, um, you know, and who knows where that will take me. And it took Sage to a very successful music career. And it took me to working at a bunch of newspapers for a long time. So (laughs) What type of, I mean, I'm curious when it comes to stage Francis's writing stuff was what type of journalism was he, did he ever actually explore that or was it something that he just used to further his like creative writing? Yeah, I don't, I have no idea. I never, I've never really talked. I know that he didn't like ever go into the field, right? I know that he, because 
I remember I was, I remember when, as soon as he like graduated school, he started, he, I, you know, not to, but I think this is like pretty well established as far as what he'll talk about at this point. But I'm, like he moved to Brooklyn, was sleeping on a friend's floor, was doing rap battles, slam poetry, just trying to make his music. Like it wasn't like he was going to make a career out of journalism. So, right. but what, what struck me was he came out with that song, Makeshift Patriot, which was right after 9-11. Um, and it was, it's actually, I, I listened to it a couple months ago and it's a September 11th song that he released pretty much in the three weeks after 9-11. And it's really good media criticism for a song, which is like not what people want out of their music most of the time. People are like, right. oh, you gotta, you got to listen to this song. He really took uh, MSNBC to task, right? Like that's right. that's not, but it's it's really interesting to me. And like, I, I, I do wonder if it like sharpened his eye for like details and like the way that we interact with media in an interesting way. But, you know, he never went into the field. I did. Um, so I, I, I followed him only so far, <laughs> you know? Um, so once you decide that you want to do that, um, are you looking towards covering like world events or are you like, no, I want to become a writer who covers music and sports and things like that. Like, or did, like, were you just kind of unsure at the time? I think I, and this sounds ridiculous, especially right now with it, with everything going on and the way that this publication has handled it. But I, I had a dream of working for the New York times and being like a very like important enterprise reporter. And right. you know, now with everything going on at the times, it's like, ugh, like, you know, totally. I, I, it's funny. I, I, I wonder how many kids actually feel that way these days, but back in the early two thousands, it was like, I, I feel like this is something to aspire to. Um, so yeah, it was not, it's interesting because with all of my interests, you think that I'd be interested in pursuing music journalism and becoming a critic and, you know, covering musicians I love, but there was always something where I wanted to keep it separate. It always felt like it was, this was my day job and this was the, the thing that I was going to pursue. And then music was this totally separate thing. And it wasn't until a little bit later in life where it's like, oh, I can actually just merge these things. And that's probably more enjoyable for me. And that's probably what I'm best at. No, that makes sense too. Because, you know, whether you're conscious of it or not, I have to imagine there's a part of you that's like, well, I don't want to be trying to create this, you know, have this like rap hip hop career while also then critiquing my peers or critique, you know what I'm saying? Like, or, you know, you don't want it to kind of feel like nepotism in a way too, where it's like, you know, having the magazine that maybe you end up writing for also covering your work. You know what I'm saying? It's like, whether you're conscious of it or not, I imagine there's some sort of conflict of interest there. Yeah. I I think, I think that I like that. And I will, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> There, it could also be that I, um, it took me a while to feel comfortable enough in my own voice because when you journalism, you're trained to write very straightforward and just, you know, tell the story without any of the flair. And of course I've learned that actually most of the, most of the best journalists do have flair, but in journalism school, they kind of, they kind of beat that out of you. Mm -hmm. And I think it took me a while to feel comfortable actually using my voice in writing, which is funny because, you know when people, when I was younger, telling me I was good at writing, they were not being like, ah, he'll be really good at telling me the who, what, where, when, and why of everything, you know? <laughs> right. He'll, he just knows how to stick to the facts. But for a while, that's what I did. And it took me a while to get comfortable using my voice again. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's such an interesting give and take when it comes to if it was just, say, covering world events as opposed to covering something that is of public interest and more of a creative field where it's like, how much of yourself do you pour into the coverage of something? You know, yeah. like, um, I know for my take, if like, you know, a pitchfork or a stereo gum or one of these publications does a review, but you read when you're in the review, it feels like the person is kind of like telling their own personal story where you're like, I'm trying to read about the artist, you know, like it's, it's that kind of give and take where sometimes people become really excited about wanting to hear that side. And then uh, other people who just want to hear about the actual record, you know what I'm saying? So it, it I, I see what you're saying when it comes to how much of yourself you want to put into something. Well, I, you know, with this, I also feel like we, I have to shout out Rob Harvilla, who I work very closely with here at The Ringer, who just came out with a book. I feel like this is an opportunity to plug his, to plug his very excellent book. Yeah. Um, but Got 60 mine songs, in the mail the other yep, day. Fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting because I think in a podcast format, people are way more open to hearing those kinds of stories because you develop Absolutely. such a connection with a person's voice and they basically live inside your your head, right? Like people have a parasocial relationship with with podcasters that they don't necessarily with writers. I think when people open Pitchfork, I think most people might not even look at the byline. They don't look at who who wrote the piece. They just open it and it's like, oh, Pitchfork wrote that. Not realizing Pitchfork is, you know, could be one of 50 writers between staffers and freelancers who could be doing it. But they think of it just being this monolithic, this is pitchfork, this is how pitchfork feels, not like almost stripping the personal experience out of this. And I'm not like, you know, for better and worse, right? Um, sometimes it really serves the writer well. Sometimes, I, you know, when I'm editing people, sometimes I'm like, you can't use the word I. You just cannot say me. You can't say I. Like you haven't, you have not earned that right in this context. I think that's um, a... I think that's brilliant criticism of you to do that. But, you know, I also edit Rob and I've never told Rob that once. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. But I, I get what you're saying, though. Those are completely two different things. You know, it's like it's a host of a show that you become very close with, uh, even though you don't know them personally in that parasocial sort of thing versus. Yeah, yeah exactly. The only time I ever think to click the byline on who did a review, like, say, on Pitchfork, is if it's something that I like that they gave a maybe not so generous review too, then I'm like, well, what the fuck else have you reviewed? Like, what do you like? Interesting. Do you, do you find yourself doing that when you read your own reviews on there? Do you even read your own reviews? Uh, of course. Uh, yeah. I, I it, it depends on the publication. Um, but you know, I think being so involved in this world, when I've seen who has reviewed us, it's like usually somebody that I am at least aware of, which makes me sure. feel like, okay, at least it's, you know, whether it's positive or negative, like it's coming from somebody whose voice I can ex at least accept, you know? You, Whereas, they, they, they've earned yeah, that credibility. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, we've been covered by like Ian Cohen, who I know has been on 60 Songs and things like that. And he's someone where I'm like, you know what? He, whether I'm going to take what he says about an artist that I like or even my own, it's like, you know, he's earned that, I guess, you know, he, cause he's, he's been around for a long time. We, we trust that he knows what he's talking about. I just edited a piece from Ian yesterday. That's running on the ringer on, oh, hotel, nice. on the, on the hotelier. And I'm like, you know, I probably wouldn't have run that piece from anyone else, but I'm like, you know what, Ian, like yeah. you've, you've, you can write that piece for me. 
Totally. It's funny. You, I just ran into him at a uh, out in Santa Barbara at that Death Cab Postal Service show. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. I was walking out. I was like, I know that. I know that fellow bald head. <laughs> do you got? Yeah. <laughs> you, do, right. There's you. You have that kinship beyond the music, beyond the writing, but you have that kinship just right there, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We got to stick together. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, workcoffeebar.com. What was the first time you ever got published? God, you know... It was probably working at the student news. It's like this is this is the thing, you know. I I was listening to the to the episode where you had Rob on and like R- Rob Harville, and he's telling like all these cool stories about working for alt weeklies. And I'm like, you know, I worked for the student newspaper, and then I went to work for a small a small town paper in Rhode Island. Right after I got out of school, it was a daily that I think like three thousand people read, and they would have me, you know, we get the, on the police scanner, they'd be like, "There's a car crash. Go cover the car crash." And I go cover the car crash and then you go to a town council meeting. And it's like, you know, all that stuff felt very important to me in the moment, but it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think a lot of that's writing about zoning for old people. And that's very, you know, I was, you know, I, I thought you might ask this question. So I was, I, I, I was talking to my girlfriend last night about this very specific question. Cause I'm like, I don't, he's not going to want to hear me talk about, I guess, you know, I, at one point I interviewed Dennis Kucinich for this, for the college newspaper. That was fun. Um, back before I realized he wasn't, you know, before I realized he was a snake oil salesman. Um, but she was like, well, say the first thing. I was like, I don't want to talk about town council meetings or car crashes that I covered. So she said, say the first thing you cover that you felt proud, proud of. And I wrote an expose piece on the local fire department that took their equipment and they took it like in a dog and pony show up to a car race, like a sub NASCAR car race in New Hampshire. And they left the town for 36 hours, basically without any fire or rescue equipment. And I wrote a big expose about that. And that was the first thing I was proud of. And I think that defined me. And I wrote like 10 pieces on it. And, um, that's, that's a, I got a tip. I got a tip and I went, I went, I went, I went with it. I just, I started digging. And that's, you know, probably also not that exciting in this context, but it felt like it, it felt like something. And then the big paper was the Providence journal and they came in and they swooped in and they basically took all my reporting and wrote and wrote their version of the story. And I was so mad for like six months. And then I realized that had to have been a bit of a learning experience too, though, with like how often that probably is what happens, you know, it's always, you always hear, you know, anytime you see a movie about any sort of thing like this, there's always like, you know, the smaller journalist journalist who's excited about, you know, getting the scoop on a story. And then of course it becomes major news. 
Well, it's it yes, and it's um you know I've learned that's how journalism works, and it's even funny you know we'll we'll, we'll talk about the podcast a little bit after, but the podcast has been doing really well. Like, and I say that like in a very you know in a very modest way, but it's um people are always like man. I can't wait till they make the Netflix documentary out of this. So even that, and it's like, yeah, I, I cool. But like, also I did this whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, I hope I at least could get to be a EP on something like that. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that, that, that's an off mic conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, man, uh, I do find that. I mean, also I want to say that you, you know, covering car crashes or, or or things like that like i mean this show is all about humble beginnings and that is that's exactly what that is it's like i mean i'm sure in those situations it was your first time dealing with an editor even if it was just like here's a you know 200 words on what happened last night um you know it it starts to teach you on how to at least get something in the paper right well what i will say is so in in the podcast and i don't want to keep dancing around the podcast and not talking about it but you know, I talked to a lot of victims of um, who were scammed by by one individual. And one thing that working for these newspapers early on taught me was um, I remember like they'd have you do the most the shit that you would just feel so uncomfortable with. And like I'm and I don't feel even good saying this now, but like a, a kid gets killed in Iraq and they made me go knock on the parents door or right. like. You know, I, the, my literal first weekend working at that newspaper, somebody died in a motorcycle crash. They had me call his wife. And it's like, and it's just, I I still feel terrible about that stuff today. Yeah. I, I still, like, I don't, I don't like doing that. But it, you know, this, it taught me kind of that sensitivity for dealing with these people. And, you know, when I, on, the, on my podcast, you hear from like a number of victims from, uh, of this guy. There were many more and it was just, I, I learned to be like very hands off. I learned like these people ultimately when somebody listens or reads the thing, they're ultimately, you know, reduced to a couple quotes, but they are people and you have to, and this is, you're often talking to them about one of the defining things of their life. So you have to treat it with the right amount of respect, both how you approach the interview and how you incorporate it into the thing you're doing. Like you can't be, you can't be very flippant about that. So while those experiences of running out and, you know, talking to a grandmother when her kid died, when her grandson died in a car crash, um, it was awful. And it's like, you feel like those stereotypical journalists that you, that you hear about and you, you just feel awful. But it did teach me valuable skills for working on something like this, where it basically taught me how to, how to be a human being in, these, in this regard and dealing with these things, right? Because it's uncomfortable things. Yeah, no, I, it's funny. I have actually in my in my questions here about uh, about when we start talking about the wedding scammer is is getting that finding that fine tuned empathy and sympathy when it comes to approaching a stranger who obviously had this financially devastating thing happen to them in a way where you're kind of approaching it being like, look, obviously this is going to be for the public to hear, but um, you know people are going to understand the situation, you know, and people are going to be empathetic to it. And, you know, we're not here to make fun of you. We're here to, you know, this could be a teaching moment for other people to find these red flags and things like that. You know, like I, I imagine going into some of those interviews, I, I can imagine your nerves for it and also wanting to be 
overly sympathetic and overly empathetic. You know, it's funny. There's one couple that really got screwed by this guy. Um, and I've become very close with them over the years. And I, I basically worked on this thing for like three years. Yeah. And um, kind of kick, was kicking around in my head for seven, but I worked on it seriously for three. And this one couple I became very close with, I they live up in the Bay Area and I've been up to visit them. And every time I go visit friends in the Bay Area, I make sure I pop over and have dinner with them. And um, they're, they're lovely people. And I wouldn't have been able to make the show if they weren't so open and, uh, you know, if they didn't trust me with their story. And I've never wanted to betray that trust. But we didn't know the name of the show up until probably a month and a half before it was coming. And when they found out that the name was The Wedding Scammer and that was the, their experience was a little different with him and they see the artwork and it's like, you know, kind of this, it's this, we have this burglar on top of a wedding cake, um, this cat burglar type figure. They actually got really worried for a second because they were like, oh, what is this? What, like, what are they going to do with my story? And they didn't say this to me, but- right. I did something I had never done before, which is, and if, if anybody who works at the ringer is listening to this, I apologize. I broke, I broke a tenant of journalism, but I played their episode for them in advance because I wanted them to know what was coming. And they were so relieved when they heard it because when they see the name, the wedding scammer, and I think like, if look, I'm going to be honest with you right now. The wedding scammer was not my first choice for a name for this, but it was the one that popped. We, we tried doing, we tried, you know, going back to rap. I tried calling it halfway crooks. Um, uh, I, at one point I was toying with petty theft. I liked that. It was petty slash theft. Um, petty and the scammer yeah. and theft. Yeah. I like, I like all those, but the wedding scammer was when everyone's like, no, like that's the one that will jump out. And it's like, all right, might sound like a lifetime movie. And it might be like, not exactly what I'm, it might not be exactly the vibe that I'm trying to get across. Like, I, I, I think it's funny to think about people like Justice Tripp coming on the show. And then you're like, okay, now the host of The Wedding Scammer. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's... Actually, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was the name because, you know, for people who tune in, that's just a piece of the story. But having that element, you know, like so many people in this, you know, in the world get married. So, and yes. as you, as you obviously illustrated the show, it is the most nerve-wracking important all of these things day for these people so the idea of that being ruined is something that i think i think people is it's a very relatable thing and which is why i'm imagining the staffers and the people you know who like kind of pointed to that being like you got to do that one chose that because that's like the biggest fear for so many people we had a number of names. Uh, we, I was toying with the cockroach at one point, and my producer threatened to turn my mic off. I didn't. I didn't tell her that I was that I was calling it that, and I just was. I was reading, and then I just said it, and she's like, "No, we're not doing that." Um, and I just I went through so many different names, and then one day I wrote them all down. I wrote down like thirty names on a whiteboard and called in like twenty people to the office, and all twenty of them pointed at the wedding scammer and said that. And I'm like, "That's the name." Like. And I know it's probably going to piss some people off because it's actually the weddings are just a small piece of it, but totally the guy works in the wedding industry still. So it works. Um, but we, I knew that like some people are going to be disappointed about that. I, you know, you said you read your reviews. I try, I try not to meet, read mine because while you have people like Ian Cohen writing about you, I have people like, you know, the guy on Reddit with, you know, with, with 60, with the number 69 in his handle. And, 
and I'm like, I'm, I'm just, this is not good for my mental health. Um, I, if, if it's a legit, if like a legit podcast critic, like Nick Qua wants to write about my podcast, I will read that. And I will take that. I will like take that to heart. I'm, there are lovely people that use Reddit every day, but I just can't sit there and read all that because it will just, you can it's read not good for anyone's mental health. You read a hundred nice comments. You read the, the most wonderful things about you, but that nasty one would just stick with you forever. And 1, I'm just like, and I'm just like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Especially with something like this that I put years into. But yeah. I, I do, I do know that in one of the, one of the reviews that I did read, there were a couple of people who were upset that we called it the wedding scammer when it's not fully about the wedding scammer. And it's like, yeah, you know, if you clicked it, wanting to hear all about weddings, sure. It might not, it might not actually be for you, but yeah. The hope was you listened and you got sucked into a story that was interesting. Um, I can tell you as someone who, you know, obviously I don't know how it ends. I'm like everybody Mm -hmm. else. I'm, you know, and this is going to air, which is actually, I was thinking about, I was like, is this, is it bad that we're recording this before the podcast, before the show ends? And I kind of think it's actually cooler that we're recording this before I even know how it ends. So it kind of does completely skirt away from any possible spoiler territory because I actually don't know how it ends. Um, I'll just but say this. I, I'll, I'll say this. As of the time we are recording this, yeah, this guy's still out there. There you go. So I, I, I do want to manage those expectations to an extent. Yeah. Because I don't, I like, I, I, I will not. This guy will not be hung up in town square and like tarred and feathered. Um, right. At, and at least, I, actually, I'm going to rescind that last part. Uh, he's still out. He's still out there, though. Is what all I will say. <laughs> Well, I mean, look how many how many fucking documentaries and podcasts has there been about Scientology? That's not going away. Fair you enough. Know? There we go. I like that. Yeah, I'm gonna say that. If if anybody says that to me, I'm gonna be like, come on, they, Scientology like what is it? David, you're just um, shining. You're shining a light on a, on a situation that is absolutely horrifying. You need a a flashlight to go down the rabbit hole. Exactly. Um, and but what I was gonna tell you is, you know. I went into it just being like, oh, this sounds like an interesting show. Um, Me being a fan of so many other Ringer podcasts, I was like, yeah, I'll fucking give this a shot, you know? And I look forward to every Tuesday since. So I think, you know, and I've never thought twice about the title of the podcast other than just like, oh, so this is the part where we're doing, we're doing the weddings, you know? Yeah, we do. We we dip in and out of weddings. Yeah. Um, Don't, Don't let Reddit win. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there are many love. I have, you know what? Every time I have a problem with my phone and I can't figure out what went wrong with my iOS, I just go on Reddit and they, they have the answer for me. So yeah. there are there are many useful people. There are many lovely, <laughs> great, helpful people on Reddit. Um, Thousand percent. Um, then, I, I wanted to, to sort of, because again, to avoid spoiler territory, but the way we can kind of tie this in, because what's interesting having you on this show, which is all about, you know, humble beginnings and like how you got into the field and all that sort of stuff is how your story actually starts with how this podcast starts, which is, you know, you talked about moving to LA to pursue a career. And so you, you know, as we, as you hear in the first episode, it's like you, you know, throw out a bunch of uh, job applications and whatever, and you get hired at a company, which is where this podcast starts. It's a company called Newsarati. Which is an incredible 
name, yeah. which as soon as you said it, and then you even say it on the, on the episode two, you're like, cause my brain went to Maserati, but it's like, that's even fucking weirder, but also Illuminati. Like, what are you, what, what is are you trying to do with this name? It sticks with you. I'll be honest, actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over the place right now, but I've never listened to a true crime podcast. I know they're, okay. they're probably the most popular in the entire field of podcasting. Right. Um, and I've, I've watched a million fucking, you know, shit ass Hulu documentaries about them and things yeah. like that. Cause they're entertaining and you know, they're four episodes usually or something like that. But, um, you know, uh, as someone who's unfamiliar with a lot of that's how, how they all work. Like, you know, I was very drawn to this, I think because I have a lot of empathy for someone who gets scammed in a situation where, um, they're being preyed upon in a creative field, which is what happened to you and some of your coworkers where you get hired by this company and it ends up not being what you think it is. There was, you know, 50 of me and 50 other people, 50 ish other people get hired to work in a WeWork in downtown Los Angeles for a media company. And, you know, it ends up not being what we think it is. And which ends up being kind of this entryway into this weird, weird world of the scammer who used a whole bunch of different aliases and jumped around the country. And, who is a very strange individual, as I think if you if you're if you're learning as the as it goes on, right? It's just like he's a very he's not a good enough scammer that it works if he's not strange, I think. And it and I also don't know if the show works if it doesn't if it I think my personal connection to it, I think mileage will vary on that, right? Like some people just want the story and they don't want like the host stepping back and doing those things. Um, like trying to discuss how they feel about this. And for us it was like, well. We're only making the show because of me, so let's play into that. But yeah, um, the number one thing I've learned about scammers, and this this feels like it should be obvious, but the number one thing I've learned is they prey upon people's dreams and ambitions. Um, I spoke to another con man who's been to prison. Kind of, I was going to interview him for the show, but then. He got really weird and I'm like, I don't want to do this interview. Um, yeah. uh, he said that people either, you know, it's either greed, ambition, or charity. Those are the three ways you can scam people. And for this show, it's definitely not greed. Like I'm not talking to people who are necessarily greedy. I'm talking to people who, you know, wanted to feel like their their work and their self-worth was validated. They're people who had ambition that, you know, I speak to the one couple who went into business with this guy and got totally taken advantage of. And it was like the wife's lifelong dream to do something like that. And this guy exploited that. With with me, I had just moved to Los Angeles. I was unemployed. I was literally living in my friend's garage in Highland Park. Um, <laughs> and I... I knew there were red flags with this job. Um, the guy was so weird from the moment I met him. It was, he was unlike any person I had ever met. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to believe that it was not 100% real because, and I, you know, deep down, I, I, I do think I knew, um, but your your brain doesn't want to listen to your gut in those situations because you you want it to be real because you want to feel validated. 
you know, the money is almost kind of secondary at that point. Because the guy offered me a lot of money and, you know, spoiler alert, I never saw it, which is kind of how this podcast starts. Um, and that was almost secondary. When I think back about that time, I don't think like this guy promised me all this money he didn't give me. It was, oh, I was in a place where I needed someone to tell me, I needed a job, don't get me wrong, I was living in a garage. But I needed someone to tell me that this bet I made on myself to move to Los Angeles was right, that I was, you know, I that this kid who grew up being told that he was a talented writer was actually a talented writer beyond just covering car crashes at small town newspapers. I, I wanted to latch onto something that felt real. And it very quickly became clear it wasn't. And that was strange. And that was a little bit of fun. But when you realize that it was that it was 100% not real, it fucking sucked. Like if it, it felt like, okay, that was all I was worth. I, I completely understand how you're feeling that way. And also, you know, again, this is like feeds into like what drew me so much to the show is because it is that predatory nature on some on people who are wanting who are wanting to pursue a creative career, right? Uh, you know, and you just moved to LA and it's like, you meet what could, you know, you like, I can, I can understand like being like, this feels like red flags, but at the same time being like, I just moved to LA. This seems like a very stereotypical LA mm -hmm. person. He's like peacocking super hard, like showing off how, you know, rich he is or like how successful he is and like all of this sort of stuff. And you're being wowed by the cool big building in, you know, downtown LA and all this sort of stuff. Like I can understand being like, you know what? I have to give him a grain of salt and might be a huge grain of salt here because, you know, they somehow brought all these people together. You know, like, it seems like I'm not the only one in this. Like, it's not like you were hired as like one of four. It's like you were one of 40 or something, you know? There were remote employees. He had Slack. There were like daily production meetings. It was all very elaborate and strange. You know, it was, there were, I signed contracts. I signed an NDA, which I guess I broke. But um, <laughs> wouldn't that be incredible if at the end of this, he ended up suing you <laughs> for, for, for something like that too. Yeah. Um, yes, that would, um, it, it would be great if, if it was like, I broke the NDA. Yeah, but, right. You know, the, everything like they, he, I didn't, apply for this job i was recruited to this job by a legitimate recruiting company right like and you know whom you talk to who i liked who, who, who I, was on the episode yes and it's very funny the the first day the episode came out i i tried the, the first day the episode came out the first person that called me was the person who recruited me which i thought was very funny because i've not spoken to them on the phone in like seven eight years and it was it was deeply funny and I'm like, oh, so here, here you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, but it turns out he didn't pay them either. He didn't pay WeWork. He didn't pay, he didn't pay anyone. And it was just this guy who just was, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to step on too much about him, the person, because we, we unveil that, we tease that out on the pod. But like this whole experience was a sham in a really weird way. Right. I wanted to ask how how difficult it was to keep the narrative going because of course, as you're listening to the show and again, avoiding spoilers, but like, you know, the onion gets peeled back 
And I'm wondering how many times you had to take a step back before actually officially starting the show to be like, okay, now we have to kind of rewrite this whole thing because of this. Like, you know, you everyone gets the idea, the image in their head of the Charlie Day fucking always sunny meme of like the board with all the connecting dots. But like, how many times did you have to rearrange that before you got going? It's, it's, I will say something very funny about the Charlie Day always sunny thing. Um, if anybody chooses to, if anybody listens to this and then goes and listens to the show, um, and we're very thankful if you do, um, there, the trailer on Spotify specifically is a video trailer. And we actually made our own version of the Charlie Day board. Oh, how funny. Um, I, I'll say this. The whole weird experience I had at this media company after moving to Los Angeles was a story that I had tried to tell people so many times over the years. Right. And any, every time I told them, they looked at me like I was crazy. And then like, as I learned more about this guy and I'm like, but then he was ruining people's weddings. And then he moved up to San Francisco and tried starting a bunch of restaurants that took a bunch of people's money. And then he was jumping around the country and get this, he has a different name. That's not any of the names that he was using in these situations. And I start telling this to people and they look at me like I'm crazy. And, you know, in terms of what the show was, it's very funny. I went back to my original documents, like right before we, we published on the first show, like my initial pitch document that I sent to my bosses, I thought sounded crazy. The structure of the episodes has remained almost the same. Like I kind of knew, I mean, I there were developments that happened in the past year that changed things, but I I knew what the beginning and the middle was. And I knew what I had to do for the ending, just how the ending fell into my lap was just better than I could have imagined. But it was all kind of there in a sense. What the biggest thing that I had to do, go back and, and rewrite was, okay, people aren't under, because scams are very confusing is the thing too. Like it's, it's, it's my job to hopefully be able to explain them in a way that people can understand. And even if they don't understand every single one of the finer points that they understand, like, okay, something really fucked up happened here. And like, I get, I get 70% of this and that's cool. I can, I can, I can live with this guy telling me the other 30% was really messed up and I'm going to keep listening. Um, but it was, a, it was like when I had people here at the ringer whose job it is to understand these things where it's like, I just don't get this. It was like, okay, I, I, there were, there were like, there was one episode, the third one that I ripped up and rewrote um, because it was the, the scams are so complex in that one. and so confusing. It involves a bunch of different fake names and people, and some of those people having real names and letting people borrow their fake names. It's actually, it's, that's the episode in particular that I was like, this feels like it would have been really hard to, yeah exactly translate in a way because in your head it makes sense but in a way to like you know you don't want to say dumb down the language because you you know it's it's not like that but in a way that you clarify and then over clarify like it makes sense how it was constructed and i think you handled it well thank you so much um the original version of that episode was an hour and a half and then I took I took a hatchet to it and then I got it down to about 45 minutes. And one of my producers was like, that's insane. You need more. You need more because like now I'm actually getting confused because you have too little. Yeah. Um, so that was one where we went back and forth on like how much to include, how to explain this info. Like there are also a lot of documents that back up these things, but it's not a visual format. So it's like, how how do you explain these documents? It's it's tricky, but 
you know, in some ways, it, some days I think that's that's my favorite episode because it's it's the it's the episode to me where it goes from like, oh, this is just a strange guy doing strange things and pocketing some money, and I don't know what he's up to, to being like, okay, this is something that feels more deliberate, and right. and the people that he took advantage of there are very 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 smart people. I've spent a lot of time with them, and they are smart people, and they have run successful businesses independent of him. And I will say this, they have run businesses that are far more successful than the, than the businesses he's run and far more successful than the scams that the scammer has run. Yeah. Uh, they're very smart people, but there was this sophistication to the manipulation that really gets me about that episode. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. I have to imagine that once you do sort of get a background on this person, was it a challenge to continue moving forward once you kind of get why he might be doing the way, doing the things that he is doing? You know what I'm saying? Like I cannot, and not wanting to paint him also as a victim, even though his circumstances could could have led him to where he is like i have to imagine that was a bit of a delicate dance without getting into spoilers and this might be useless for your listeners yeah what did you think of that episode where i unveil his backstory i i mean i was in a way a part of me was like i have to imagine there there was something you know like because there always is no one is just born bad right right like it's always a circumstance that leads him there. Um, I, you know, it's probably similar to you where I was like, you know, now I do of course have empathy for the guy. And I think it's important to have empathy for everybody. Right. Absolutely. But, but then you have to remember what he's done to people. And that's where you're like, well, we have to continue the story. We have to understand, you know, I still want to know everything that happens here, but I do now feel something for the person. It was never a question of whether I was going to continue making making this. When It, it actually, to me, became a more, it, it became a fascinating story. We can like, you know, I, I, I don't know where this fits into the whole covering car crashes and knocking yeah. on grandma's doors, doors dynamic. Jesus, the accent really came out there. Um, but the... Uh, <laughs> I don't know where that fits into that whole dynamic, but you know, it was w- when I swore off Reddit was when I saw some people saying like I could have done without the episode on the guy's backstory, and it was like I don't I don't understand how it's important to the to understanding the whole picture. I, like I don't understand how you even tell a story without doing that, and yeah. like it'd be negligent. It would be negligent. It's also. The scams, the weddings, all of that is kind of the hook, but I really have tried to tell something that I hope is a human story. And yeah. and that cuts both ways. That cuts for his victims. And then it cuts 
um, for him. And a very smart friend of mine, um, Ben Glicksman, who's actually the editor-in-chief here at The Ringer, um, the episode where I unveil his backstory is actually his favorite episode of the podcast. And he he said to me something, and I told him, this is the smartest thing anyone said about my show, so I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to give you credit, but I'm stealing it, and I'm going to say it. He said the first couple episodes, he thought I did a nice job of explaining how anyone who can get scammed, right? How anyone, you think you're too smart for it, but really, you can get manipulated into it. And you know, I've, I was, I've even right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm going to great lengths to say that couple that got really scanned by him, they're really smart people. Yeah. Um, cause I want to make that clear both because I feel like I need to say that for them, but also I want to make it clear smart people get scammed. Yeah. But the episode about the scammers backstory, Ben Glicksman, the editor in chief here says, what struck me about that episode is you, it drives home like there's actually a relatively thin line between us and the people who are doing the scamming. And I was like, that's really smart that I'm going to take that. Um, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but someone, um, a listener sent me, I, 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 I looked high and low for this guy's high school yearbook and I've never seen it. And then I tracked down a copy. And then when they found out I was making a true crime podcast, they would not give it to me. And it was a, it was a private school. So it was like, yeah. A listener sent me a copy of his fourth grade yearbook. And I, I received that picture and I've been like really toying with, I, I set up an Instagram account for the podcast so I can like dump pictures. And mm-hmm. I did an explainer video about the episode three with all the name switching um, that I think explains it very neatly. Um, I've really kind of struggled with whether to post this picture or not. And if I do post it, if this is him in fourth grade. And if I do post it, it's not going to be like, here he, here he is. Here's the, here's the guy. It's going to like, I would have to express the feelings that I'm wrestling with, which is he looked like a happy, normal kid. And right. that's the part that kills me. And it like really humanizes this guy who's done some things that, are truly reprehensible. And I've like, I really struggle with this. And to me, that's not a reason to not tell the story. That's a reason to tell it. And again, I don't know where that fit people listening to that. I don't know how, I don't know how they react to hearing that. Right. But I'm not, again, I'm not going around doing this about you know, my next door neighbor, you know, I'm not, I'm not exposing them and being like, the, right. like is somebody who's caused a lot of pain, who has been, he ended up in the San Francisco Chronicle for some scams. He's been to prison. He's, he has a long history of doing these things, at least two decades worth. Yeah. And I do. <sighs> there also seems to be like some sort of an addiction uh, element for this person. Cause obviously jail didn't stop it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's deep within this person's identity and how they move throughout the world. It's interesting. And I, I don't want to go too far down that road because you, you start, because I, yeah. I do get into this as the series goes on, but yes, okay. it's, I, I do think though, this is even somebody who, when he's trying to do the right thing, sometimes the worst instincts kick in. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, like you, it's a, it's the biggest buzzword in the entire world that uh, we all exist in, but you know, trauma does wild things to people and 
you know, hurt people hurt people. <laughs> Classic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, this is such kind of a basic question, so I apologize for that, but like, All good. what have you found was the biggest challenge of doing this show? Like that a listener might be surprised to hear. Like, I know there's obvious things like, you know, potentially not getting approval for a recording, you know, someone saying, I don't want you to air this, you know, yeah. or you're not allowed to record this, something like that, which seems like an obvious, but is there something that um, maybe if someone wanted to do their own kind of show like this, is there any advice that you would give them because of maybe some sort of challenge that you faced? I would say that I, I would hope that your um, that the person that you're tracking did not um, interact with the New York penal system in the, in the 2000s because those records are a mess and very hard to track down. It oh, took interesting. Me, it took me years to track down those records. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's just a very logistical thing. And then this is very funny. Um, funny maybe just to me, but when I finally did track them down, uh, I had a, have a friend of mine in New York pick them up in person because you can only pick them up in person and they had to have exact change and they did not take credit cards. So he had to have exact, and I'm talking like exact change. They don't like, make change. like 43 cents. Yes. And he had to do this and I will forever be indebted to this person for doing this. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. Um, it's, it's absolutely insane, but um you know, something that I, struck me, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to answer no, this no, for no. you, but like something that struck me was I'm a very cart before the horse person. Yeah. I get very excited about ideas and then I do the fun part. And then when it comes to figuring out the end, that's where I go, oh, fuck. And you've sort of talked about how it got put on hold because you didn't know what the end was. So I'm wondering if maybe that plays into this or if there's any, or if there's something else. So, yeah, I mean, like from, from a logistical point, like actually getting this thing made, I think, you know, and people put hit play on a podcast and, you know, especially one like this, that's very scripted and very produced and um, has music and we do it all fancy and they don't realize making each one of these is like making a mini movie, you know, of course, no, not visual, but it's, you know, some of these episodes were recorded like three times and, we're finishing up the final episodes right now. And it's like, add a little space here, change the music here. It's just like, like we got to re-record this line. Like this afternoon, I have to go in and re-record three lines because they don't, they don't sound right, you know, but it's just doing a lot of stuff like that. But even getting something like this made, that was honestly the challenging part. I was very excited to do this. I So the way that this project came together was um, Sean Fennessy here at The Ringer is head of content and a great guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to work with this guy. And at one point he says, we need, come to me with some ideas. He says to a handful of people, come, come with some fresh ideas. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, we should do a podcast on scammers. And I start writing up this very generic pitch about a scammer podcast. And then I was like, I know a scammer. I know a guy who scammed me. And I just got, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And I was like, you know, and I knew that he had done some other things. It was just a story that I kind of kept to myself at the ringer because it's like, you know, I don't want to run around being like, did I ever tell you about the time I got scammed? Right. Um, 
except now that's what I'm doing literally for hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, the best comment that I saw on Reddit was somebody saying to me, I, I think you should do another one. Has anything else strange ever happened to you? Um, <laughs> like that's the right attitude. Um, but you know, everyone was very much like, yeah, this is exciting. This sounds great, but what's the end? And I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. And it hit a point where it's like, oh shit, I've done a lot of work and I actually have no idea what the ending is. And I had to put it on hold and it was, it made sense. I, I, it was the 100% right call both personally and for my bosses, but it was like my, it was honestly my greatest professional regret that I, I put so much into this. I had had people trust me with their stories about being scammed, um, about the heartbreak that they felt about honestly the most vulnerable moments of their lives for the most part. Um, and I was not able to make it happen because I didn't know where the guy was. I didn't know what name he was using. I didn't know any of this. And it wasn't until something fell into my lap in late 2022 that I knew I could bring it home. But even then there were still all these hurdles we had to go through. It had to be like, okay, we have to record this. And like, do I sound good on a microphone like this? Like I've done other podcast work, but I've never like written a script. And like, I've worked with people who, you know, this is definitely not Rob Harvilla who has the, who has like the most perfect podcast reading voice ever. Yeah. Uh, but I've worked with people. It's like, Oh, you, you reading things are, is not your, is not your strong suit. Like you're much better just speaking on a microphone, you know, it's totally. Like, yeah. And it took me a while to like learn how to do that. Right. Like in the later episodes, I think I sound better than I do in the earlier episodes because by that point I'd had like, you know, a lot of experience, had a lot of hours doing this. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a whole process that went from not knowing how to finish the story to having to get other kinds of approval to like actually learning how to make it. And it, it all sounds so simple, but it's such a different process than writing. If I had just written the 10,000 word New Yorker version of this story, it would have been interesting. And, you know, I think people would have enjoyed it. But it would have been something like, okay, I write it, somebody edits it, the lawyers look at it, I get some notes, I make some changes, I like sit on it for a couple of days, I make some more changes, and then it would have just gone on in the world and that would have been it. This was like a couple years long process. And then even once it got a green light, there were still other steps that we had to go through in order to make sure we could actually do this. So I don't know if that like, I don't know if that's like a, a question that's too specific to be useful to anyone else. Um, what, what I will say is like motivation is really good at taking the first, getting you to take the first step. Um, discipline is how you get to the finish line though. And there became a certain point where there were days where it was like, I can't find these court documents or like these three people have all not returned my emails who were very important and just all these things. And it was, it just became a point where it's like, I have to sit down and I have to just do this every day. And it's like, this isn't fun today, but the end result is something that I really want to do. So if, if that, if that's like a useful way of saying this, then that, then that's the way I'll say it. But it's, um, I know. think it's, I think that's extremely useful. That makes it. Yeah. Yeah. I applaud you. Cause I mean, even you just saying how many years this took, it's, uh, it's impressive that you held on and that you believed in it 
so much because it's easy for a lot for a lot of people. I know I would probably at some point have just been like, well, I need to come up with a new idea. And the fact that you held on and it's become what it is, it's uh, I have to applaud you for that. And then it's over. It's seven weeks. That's <laughs> all. Yeah. Years, and then, then it, you know, we're, we're, we just did episode five. So I have basically ten days left of this from when we're recording. So yeah. it's, then maybe it's a, I get a bonus episode if something crazy happens. Right. No. Totally. Totally. Uh, just to kind of round out maybe a lot of like the first experience and stuff. So you know, as you learn from listening to the show, you know it's like once the Nuzerati uh, situation ends, you end up getting hired at the ringer which is where this episode this show is airing and you've been a staff writer and worker there for was that the first job you got after the news variety situation or was there stuff in between i took another really shitty job at a newspaper and i I won't i won't name that newspaper but that was worse than any newspaper i worked worked at back in rhode island it was here in la and it was I, i i made less money than i was making working at newspapers in rhode island and it was like I was legitimately applying for jobs back home in Rhode Island because I'm like, this is my, this is my LA story. I lived in a garage, I got scammed, and then I and then I then I lost my DJ career because that was going well. <laughs> I mean, again, all of that makes sense. I could understand being defeated. I've known people. I have worked with people that moved to LA for you know. I worked in post production as a kid from Burbank does. You know, at some point. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I, one time where I had a coworker who moved from Wisconsin, got a job at this post house and his dream was to become a writer and director. And then all he did was work at this post house. And then he was, he never pursued anything uh, beyond that. And then was like, I'm going to move back. LA is a tough city. I'm like, all right. You know, like I, I get it. And that's going to be his story. You know, like it's easy to be like, this isn't for me, you know, like, it's not it's not what i envisioned and now i'm back home so like also the fact that you stuck it out impressive you know it takes will <laughs> i don't know if i would have if if i didn't so the i land at the ringer in june 2016 i i literally my first day is with the first day of when the website launched and of the ringer uh, yes oh I, wow I, yeah i was the nighttime copy editor and that is like i'm first of all i'm, I'm not a good copy editor and i don't and i i've done I, I thank them for just allowing me to be a copy editor. And then I don't know if it was because they thought I could do more or if it was just like, we can't fire this guy and we don't want to, we, we, we can't have him being a copy editor anymore. So let's let him write about sports and music, you know, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask it. It looked like in 2018, the first article, at least when you search your name on there was like about little peep. Is that potentially the first article you wrote? I wrote, I wrote something about DJ shadow before that. Okay. Um, yeah. That's really funny. I, I, so 2018 is when I went from being a copy editor to being an associate editor. And now my title here is deputy music lead, which is always creates a very, a very funny Dwight Schrute, like assistant to the regional manager <laughs> assistant. Right. But, um, uh, I, um, yeah, I, I wrote about, I wrote about little peeps, uh, posthumous album. That was one of the, that was, in, that was one of the first, I wrote a DJ shadow piece to the anniversary of introducing and, 2016 and then uh and took a couple years off and then wrote that and then i just it was kind of like landing at the ringer was actually a dream job for me it was everything that it was the validation that i wanted when i took the newsarati job it's like tenfold too because like i I had worshipped these people from when they worked at grantland if that means anything to the people listening right like i just 
you know, I, the Grantland was my first stop on the internet every morning. It was like Grantland, Pitchfork, and then like, you know, Deadspin. And like, this is, this is what I was doing instead of working at my shitty newspaper jobs. I would just get to the office and just go to these places and just just read read other articles. Yeah, totally. And, um, Landing there was my dream job. And in 2018, it was kind of like, you gotta make more of it. Like you have to make a real, just being there isn't enough. You have to make a real go at taking advantage of the things that you've done here. I mean, just having this opportunity. And I think that I kind of have done that to an extent. Like, I mean, I granted, you know, I made this, I made this podcast. I've written a lot over the past few years, but it was like, yeah, that was it was important for me to take advantage of it, to be, just being there. And um, at what point did you start working on podcasts as an editor? Uh, Sean Fennessy came to me and Rob Harvilla in 2020 and said, I want you guys to make a podcast. Um, <laughs> we, that was at a point during the pandemic when we were launching a lot, a lot of new podcasts. And he basically said, Rob, let's try you out on a podcast. And we sat down and we conceptualized 60 songs that explain the nineties. Um, and you know, I will, that show does not work if Rob Harvilla is not the host. I'm just thankful that I've been there every step of the way with him. Um, he is, I was curious. Yeah. Like I had, you know, I, as someone who's such a big fan of the show, uh, I had a couple questions from your standpoint, um, before we wrap up here, if you wouldn't mind just like me, me bugging you about that process. Absolutely. Uh, Um, did you f- what so i was curious if yeah if it was just like if you had known rob very much before that or if it was just like hey we're gonna pair you two up and you're gonna develop this show i had been his editor for two years when he was mostly writing on the website but we okay. we didn't know each other before we were kind of pushed together in that in that way yeah um but yeah sean asked us to create a show and it became 60 songs and um you know, we've obviously grown much closer over the years through that process. Have um, you met in person yet? We met in person when I was the when I was the copy editor in 2016, and then I didn't see him for six years. Yeah, seven years, seven years, and I saw him in August in Stockholm. Oh, right, he went out there. That's right. Yes, and it's it was very funny. And then and then I see him in. Uh, tomorrow tomorrow yeah i see him in the flesh tomorrow so i i went seven years without seeing this man who i talked to like you know five times a week yeah and now i'm gonna see him twice in the span of three months because i remember being struck because i feel like yassi hasn't met him in person yet either right yeah and they're about to meet for the first time tomorrow Yes, Yasi has not met him in person. Yasi also, to be fair, Yasi is a Ringer employee and has now been for like a year and a half. And Yasi has not been to the office once. So Yasi, if you are listening to this, it is crazy. And maybe Rob Harville is just there all the time and I'm not telling you. <laughs> That's insane that she hasn't been to the office. Respect. Not once. Not respect. once. Respect. Yeah. Work from home queen. Um, I was curious uh, when Rob does like writes out the monologues are you involved uh in that process early on like and are the monologues recorded before the guest interviews yeah the, the second part depends it just depends on how we're doing with scheduling okay. um, there there's i kind of um i prefer because typically he's mostly through writing when he 
um, when he gets to the interview, whether we, whether we've actually recorded or not, I prefer if we record beforehand when we're all done. So that way he knows what questions he needs to kind of fill in the gaps with, with the, uh, with the guest, um, the scripts, I always read the scripts and leave a couple, leave a couple notes, you know, and sometimes they're fact notes. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you know, maybe we don't need to mention Tupac in the Puff Daddy episode. Um, <laughs> and the, the, like, the, there are sometimes things like that, but Rob, what you get with, I mean, Rob is the genius that makes the show work. You know, I, all I can do is like occasionally like leave a note here or there that I hope makes the show a little bit better. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, being an editor, I have had younger writers who I feel like I've, I like, I have taught this person. They knew how to walk when they came to me and now they can run. Right. And then when Rob, when Rob comes to me, who is, you know, he's Rob's a few years older than me. He was so established. What could I teach Rob? Right. The best I can do is like, be like, this is working for me. This isn't working for me. And you know what? 99.9% of the time it's working for me because Rob's a genius. Yeah. Uh, just for my own, um, creative self and someone who struggles with recording intros and outros to this show. Like it takes me kind of a few times just because I hate the sound of my voice and how long it takes, you know, or like, or like, Oh, I kind of jumbled that line. I could say that better. You just talked about for your show, having to go in and re-record a couple lines and things like that. Um, when he's doing those monologues, is he doing them just by independently by himself and then he sends them to you or are you on when he's doing those? No, we're, we're on. So it's Jonathan Kerma is the person who edits the audio. I don't actually touch the audio. Thank God. Oh, okay. Uh, so thank, thank God. Cause they, they, all those song clips and everything, I will yeah. say this. So we, we all sit there and typically like the hope is if he mispronounces something, I, I will catch it, but sometimes I don't catch it. And then it makes it in. It's very hilarious. And um, then Reddit. Yep. Then, then Reddit. <laughs> uh, love Reddit. Love Reddit. Got to be clear. Um, so I have actually gained a newfound appreciation for Rob in the past um, in the past six seven months as I've been recording my show because Rob is the most natural person I've ever met in this in this format. Right. He will just step in and he writes in such a specific voice, but he knows exactly what he wants to do. There was one point we were were recording an episode probably like three weeks ago and he messed up a pronunciation, but I wanted to wait till the next stop. Right. Like I wanted to make, I wanted to wait till he had to like, till he stumbled on something else, I had to stop and restart because I didn't want to interrupt. And it took five minutes before we got to another stop. Like he is such a natural at this. Like I'm it's incredible. I'm I honestly cannot say enough nice things about the about his his abilities on the show. Like it's I don't know. And I I I, I know this sounds weird. And like I also like I'm technically Rob's manager, so I have to like go write his review. And it's like I don't know how I'm supposed to be like Rob needs to improve at this when I'm sitting here on a podcast. <laughs> right. being like, um, but it's just he's amazing at it. I remember being so struck by you know, such, it was such an honor getting to be the guest on that Fugazi episode. Yeah. I missed that. I missed that recording. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Uh, but I remember being so struck because, you know, he sent me the questions beforehand, which is so helpful that he does, you know, and it was wild even reading the questions. I heard his voice in my head, reading his questions. And then when he, when we were recording and he was asking them, I was like, 
I was like, this just sounds so off the cuff. It's so impressive. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, yeah, as it gets back to that, you know, him just being just such a natural at this. It's, um, such, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, man, I feel like, you know, I feel, especially you in a Fargo t-shirt, we could probably do this all day, but uh, <laughs> I won't take up any more of your time. I want to hit you with the last question, which mm. was, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? You know, when it comes back and I knew, I knew you were going to ask this. So I did, I, I came close to stepping on this while, while I was discussing like my path at the ringer and I'm, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer in this field. So it's embarrassing that this happened probably like four years ago when I was in my, you know, mid thirties on inching up to my late thirties. Um, but it was when I convinced the ringer to send me to Sopranos con to, um, do like a 5,000 word feature on this weird convention. You know, if anybody doesn't know, Sopranos Con was a, like a Star Trek convention for the Sopranos. And I, you know, I grew up in Rhode Island. My, you know, I already said earlier that my dad sat me down and showed me Goodfellas when I was 10. Um, you know, my mom had a boss who like may have known John Gotti a little bit. Like it was, it's very, 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 very Rhode Island, all yeah. that experience. Right. So, not only was this like show very much in my lifeblood, like if I call my mother right now, there's a chance that she has the reruns on. I think there's like more reasonable than not that she doesn't, um, that she does. But it was like they they sent me there and I got to write this gonzo style feature on kind of the, the weird history of the show. And this is before everyone rewatched it in the pandemic. Um, so it was when this like Sopranos nostalgia before it was becoming a real meme thing. It was when this was all starting to bubble up and I got to write about that. And it was like, this is really cool that I just convinced the people that I worshiped at Grantland to fly me across the country to go cover this weird thing that feels like this weird connection to, you know, my mom's very, very, very Italian roots. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's just, it was, it was very funny. And I love it and I adore that piece. And it was probably like 1500 words too long, but it was, <laughs> but it's great. It's the classic, uh, you know, the the old timing phrase of uh, if, if you love your job, you won't work a day in your life or whatever. Yeah. And that and, seems like one of those situations. And that's me as like Paulie Walnuts is like taking a golf cart through the convention. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and uh, congrats again on the show. I'm excited to hear these last two episodes. So thanks thank, again, Justin. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate this. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Justin for coming on and thank you for listening. This episode was produced, edited, and made to sound so great by my boy Ryan Rainbow. Shout out to him as always. And reminder, there is a bonus episode available right now where Justin answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And now, if you haven't checked it out yet, go listen to The Wedding Scammer. Hope to see you on tour. Take care. Be good. Bye-bye.